From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. If you want to scrap Tabor, Colorado's strict limit on taxing and spending, you can try with a single ballot measure. That's what the state Supreme Court has ruled. And with just such a proposal in the works, Governor Jared Polis stands by the idea that Coloradans should vote on their taxes. Obviously, I'd be skeptical of anything that took power away from the people. That's in our regular conversation at the Capitol. Then we debut CPR's new podcast, On Something, about life after legalization. Over the years, marijuana's been idealized and demonized. These high school boys and girls are having a hop at the local soda fountain innocent of a new and deadly menace lurking behind closed doors. Marijuana, the burning weed with its roots in hell. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado has arguably the country's strictest limit on taxing and spending, TABOR, the Taxpayer's Bill of Rights. It's in Colorado's Constitution, and on Monday... The state Supreme Court ruled it is possible to get rid of Tabor with just one question to voters. Organizers are eyeing this for 2020. We wanted the governor's take. And so in our regular conversation at the Capitol, I asked Democrat Jared Polis, should Tabor be undone? Well, I strongly support the right of voters to be able to vote on tax increases. The problem that you get into with Tabor is it also has very complex formulas that effectively don't allow the state to be able to invest with receipts that it gets. So separating that from being able to vote on your taxes, which is a good thing. We do that at municipal level, county level, state level. And what we need to do is either change or roll back some of those formulas that are in in Tabor. So do I hear that any measure that entirely undoes Tabor, including the mandate to vote on taxes, would not have your support? Uh, Obviously, I always like to wait to see what's actually on the ballot until I take a position. But obviously, I'd be skeptical of anything that took power away from the people. I support the ability of the people to vote. What you're talking about there, the sort of complicated elements of Tabor, speaks to something that I've heard previous governors refer to as the Gordian knot, having your foot on the brake and the accelerator at the same time. And that is that there are other measures in the state constitution along with Tabor, Amendment 23, which governs education spending, Gallagher, which has to do with property taxes, that all of this results in some very complicated budgeting and some inflexibility. Well, absolutely. We've convened a fiscal working group led by Kerry Kennedy, who has joined us as a special advisor for fiscal reform. Former treasurer. Uh, Former treasurer, really working with the business community, the education community, people who care about roads and transportation to help. And again, there's not one answer to this. I mean, for instance, when you look at something like roads, uh, what's generally called for if you need bonding, is some form of dedicated revenue source. The voters recently ruled out sales tax as that. They also didn't want to bond without new revenue. So uh, we're committed to working with folks to find these solutions. You know, many of them would ultimately need to be passed by the voters. All right. There is an entirely different proposal that the legislature has brought to the ballot this year, asking voters if under Tabor the state can keep any future refunds to taxpayers and then use that money for transportation and education. I want to know if you'll campaign to end Tabor refunds. This is called Prop CC, and it's on the ballot. Well, I'm generally supportive of the concept. Uh, You know, I appreciate the leadership that many members of the legislature showed on this. In terms of good governance, 
clearly, if you I run a business before, and when you make a profit, you're able to reinvest that in your growth because you need to be competitive. So uh, again, I really want to work with a broad bipartisan group to uh, figure out if this is the best way to reform Tabor in this case. Well, last week, a group of prominent Coloradans, including a former governor and a former U.S. senator, announced their opposition to CC. Among other things, they say there aren't enough specifics about how the money would be spent. Uh, So it sounds like the broad bipartisan coalition that you seek is in question here. Do you agree? Well, I'd be very open to engaging all of those folks in a discussion about what we need to do to either reform Tabor or utilize the surplus. So I think they absolutely should be part of the discussion. But it doesn't sound like you'll go to the mat for CC. Well, again, I, I think that there's uh, it's a systemic fix. Um, it doesn't mean that there's revenue every year. It's not the same as a dedicated funding source, for instance, that would fund preschool. It doesn't yet contain a tax cut, which is a big part of my agenda, is to reduce a permanent reduction of the income tax rate. So, uh, again, if there's a way to get it done in a way that cuts taxes or funds preschool, that's something that would excite me. Yeah, it sounds like you think it's a Band-Aid to a larger problem. Well, I don't think anybody's arguing that somehow referendum CC solves everything, to be clear. It is a step that would allow the state to retain Tabor surpluses in years where they have one. Now, keep in mind, I think seven of the last nine years, we didn't have one. Yeah, so, right, exactly. So it wouldn't have meant anything in those years. So again, from a good governance perspective, does it make sense? It probably does. Uh, I don't think there's anybody, uh, Republican, Independent, Democrat, that says this is the entire solution right here. Right. Given the fact that there have not really been refunds of late, uh, this is not expected to make a huge dent, for instance, in the $9 billion backlog in transportation. What it would do is in strong economic years, it would allow the state to invest in keeping up with growth, meaning reducing traffic, investing in our schools. Now, in downturns, there's no revenue there. So it doesn't mean that that revenue is predictable. But again, in strong economic times, that's one of the many challenges our states face, is that when we have strong economic times, we underinvest. So uh, what makes sense is we should have a mechanism to keep up with growth. Uh, Speaking of a potential downturn, economists predict that Colorado's growth will slow over the next couple of years. And nationally, some experts expect a full-blown recession. Is that something you're braced for? We um, have not seen any indication yet of a strong downturn. There's a slowing in growth that's occurring. Obviously, I worry about, a lot about the economic impact of tariffs and trade wars. Uh, but again, we also know that historically the economy goes in cycles. So I'm sure at some point, you know, your prediction will be correct, whether that's in one year, in three years, or in five years. I think it's fair to say there will be a recession. We never have had a period of unabashed economic growth for decade upon decade. Does the state have the reserves to weather something like that? So the legislature did set aside a strong amount of reserves, over 7%. We had suggested a little bit more. There was also recently money deposited in the state education fund, which is a rainy day fund for education. So you think the state is in a generally strong position? You know, when compared to other states, we're in a strong fiscal condition. I look at, you know, my friend of mine who I've known for 20 years was recently elected governor of Illinois, J.B. Pritzker, and uh, they're in a terrible fiscal shape in Illinois. The state is practically bankrupt in part due to their pension system and other unfunded liabilities. Uh, We have a strong fiscal state here in Colorado. Uh, Doesn't mean that like everybody in the country, of course, we'd have to tighten our belts. And just as families would be making sacrifices, the state also would in a recession. But uh, I think overall, we have very strong financial health in our state. We heard a pretty vivid description of the marijuana black market in Colorado. It came from U.S. attorney here, Jason Dunn. 
after a recent bust, he described uh, what may be a network of homes where illegal grows were taking place. Let's listen. We executed search warrants on approximately 250 homes that were being used to grow, you know, four, five hundred, all the way up to a thousand plants uh, in the basement with no, in most cases, nobody living there. These were homes where in Colorado? All over from Colorado Springs, Pueblo, all the way up to Greeley, but primarily concentrated in the metro area. And these are not homes that are run down, abandoned homes. The, you know, the average value of the homes that we actually filed forfeiture actions on was about $400,000. The lawns are maintained. Um, They don't look like drug houses, but they are. A single home, Dunn told us, might generate millions of dollars in marijuana a year. And much of that product, he says, is being sold out of state. How concerned are you about the black market? Well, I think we should be even more concerned about the black market than we were because we also have a legitimate business in Colorado. So just as we would be concerned about moonshine undermining our legal breweries or illegally produced beer, uh, we should be terribly concerned, not only, of course, for the public health impact, not only because these are criminals and cartels involved, but also because it undermines legitimate Colorado businesses. There were some steps taken to fight the black market under your predecessor, Governor Hickenlooper. Uh, How does your administration see moving forward on this? Uh, This is a real priority for us. So we need to do a better job in our state working with local law enforcement as well as the state, as well as the attorney general, on making sure that we can drive out illegal drug production in Colorado. Is it your fear that the illegal trade may bring the federal government cracking down on Colorado and thus putting the legal at least by state law, industry at risk. Is that what I hear you saying? Well, that might be a concern of the industry. I think uh, what we have in Colorado is we look forward to cooperating with the federal government to drive out illegal marijuana production in Colorado because illegal marijuana production not only is a danger to people, but it also undermines our legitimate businesses that are well-regulated just as Colorado voters chose to regulate marijuana-like alcohol. So we, of course, have full cooperation with federal authorities with regard to investigating and prosecuting illegal marijuana production. Thank you, Governor. Thank you. Democrat Jared Polis is in his first term as Colorado's governor. We spoke Monday at the state capitol. And our conversation continues later this week as Colorado Matters heads to Grand Junction. We asked Polis about several big issues facing the western slope, like whether it will land a major new employer and how he connects with a part of the state that's politically as red as Polis's hometown Boulder is blue. Tune in Thursday for that. A lot of teachers go from college right into the classroom, but one soon-to-be high school teacher took a winding road, including three tours of duty in Iraq. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine introduces us to Jesse Worthen. I worked at a finance company. I worked at a, a manufacturing company where I was on like a line for manufacturing. I worked in construction in concrete. Jesse Worthen, warm with a quick laugh, has packed a lot into her 34 years. I drilled pipe. I hauled peat gravel. But she struggled in school, possibly, she says, because of a learning disability. Worthen remembers when she was 18, just graduated from high school. I had no option of going to college. No money. Came from a very poor background. And I thought, well, my dad was in the Navy. My grandfather was in the Navy. My other grandfather was in the Army. I'm going to go join. 
Worthen chose the Marines. It was more physical than intellectual, and she was a runner. She served three tours in Iraq. She drove big, heavy trucks hauling up to 30,000 pounds, even bulldozers and tanks. On one tour, she hauled supplies for a raid on Fallujah. It was 2004, a year after Army soldier Jessica Lynch was kidnapped. And there were worries the Iraqi insurgents would try and kidnap another woman. Yet, After a long day's work, a lieutenant from another unit told her she'd have to sleep outside the city's protective wire because he feared a woman would sleep with his Marines. It was a nightmare because we helped them build up their post so they could be safe. And then I was told I had to sleep on the outside. And when I walked away, I looked at my truck and I was just like, I can't believe this is happening. Like... Literally, we have intel that they're trying to abduct women. The cab and back of her truck were full. She was getting ready to sleep under the truck when the two other drivers from her unit, both men, approached her. It was freezing, but they joined her all three under the truck that night. They slept right next to me. Our rifles were out the whole time, and they put their lives at risk just to make sure that I stayed safe. But after all that struggle, it was coming home that was the hardest. Everything was different. The Marines had their own dark humor, their own language. 3531, Sometimes it still makes its way into how she talks. So once I get kind of like, uh, I'm not sure this is the right word, but like embedded in high school. I- and the former Marines' tendency to take charge can also be misinterpreted. We're intimidating. So, and it's not that we're being mean, but we're very straightforward, we're very strict. When she left the Marines, Worthen paid $9,000 for a license to operate front-end loaders, backhoes, and excavators. It was a big investment, but people in construction didn't really want her. At one of her first construction sites... The guy basically told me no. He goes, I only hire men. And others were like, you're a woman and you're wanting to do... I literally met with more discrimination when I got out of the military. It kept happening. She'd persist, but then eventually she had to leave heavy construction when her arm gave out due to an injury in Iraq. Worthen began working as a security guard. Her boss wanted to sleep with her. She told him no, and he took her off the schedule completely. She had to pay rent. Her family was there for her, but Worthen wanted to figure it out on her own. She had 120 bucks for the month. It was summertime, and the former Marine was homeless. Just living in that campground was, it was kind of actually enlightening. I thought it would be kind of bad, but I ended up having a really good experience because I met people who took care of me. But the biggest thing was realizing it's okay to ask for help. She says that's especially hard for women veterans. The VA estimates there are between 20 and 40,000 homeless female veterans. One day, Worthen remembered her passion, history. Look at Hypatia. She was actually a female philosopher and a cyclonic mathematician. She studied circles. Right before the I think I was actually talking to my brother, and I was like, you know what? I just want to be a history major, and I want to go and teach history. A friend urged her to enroll at Metro State University, where she became president of the Veterans Club. She's working on getting a license to teach high school social studies. Her joy now is her student teaching at Stewart Middle School in Commerce City. So what kind of government did you choose? Democracy. Democracy. Worthen thinks teaching will be more taxing than driving a 30,000-pound truck in Iraq. But she doesn't see a big gap between dealing with Marines and high school kids. 18, 19-year-old Marines, they're no, they're no different than they are. <laughs> they just have more cuss words, honestly. <laughs> she wants to infuse her wealth of experience into her history lessons and give her students an idea of the range of possibilities awaiting them. Because they're about ready to get out and go into life. Jesse Worthen plans to one day teach in rural Colorado. I'm Jenny Brendine, Colorado Public Radio News. 
Colorado is on pace to set another record for cannabis sales. In the first three months of this year, recreational and medical marijuana receipts added up to $387 million, well ahead of the year before, which was also a record setter. Can that trend continue with new regulations and more states legalizing? It's one of the many, many issues related to cannabis that CPR News explores in our new podcast, On Something. It debuts today. It's hosted by Anne-Marie Awad. Hi, Anne. Hello. Why don't we start with the idea behind On Something? Who is this podcast for? So I think we as journalists sometimes like to think of this as like a niche issue legalization where there's like a very vocal pro side and a very vocal anti side. And that's it. Right. But the reality, and we learn this throughout the course of making this podcast, is that a vast majority of Americans sort of live in that like sweet spot in the middle where marijuana is a part of everyday life. They walk past a dispensary on the way to work or their friends consume or they put a few CBD droplets in their latte in the morning. Um, And this is who the podcast is for, is people who are sort of navigating life after legalization. (laughs) And who are curious about it, I suppose. Exactly. And and may not partake. Uh, In this debut episode, you talk about what happened when you first moved here. One of the first things I did when I came to Colorado is I, you know, found my apartment. I got all the grown-up stuff out of the way. I got my utilities turned on and everything. And then I went and found a dispensary. I walk in. It smells a lot like weed. And, you know, they ID me. They let me in the back. And then they're like, all right, what do you want? And I said, I don't know. (laughs) I just came in here because I was curious. So I bought an eighth. That day I also learned what an eighth is. It's an eighth of an ounce. And they were really nice. They sent me out the door with free rolling papers and a free lighter. And they said, welcome to Colorado. What do you think the biggest surprise was putting this together? The surprise came sort of like um, when we were coming up with the idea in the first place. I covered marijuana legalization a lot as a reporter in this newsroom. um, And I just kept finding these unexpected places where legalization kind of uh, intersected with other areas of life. So I interviewed parents whose kids were on the medical marijuana registry who found Mm. themselves getting child protective services called on them. I interviewed people who were non-citizens who found them their citizenship in trouble because they tried marijuana or worked in the industry. Um, And that was really the point where I was like, you know, there's a lot here. To talk about. A lot more to talk about. Well, Anne-Marie Awad, host of CPR's new podcast, On Something. Don't go anywhere. We're going to listen to this first episode and then talk about what's next. So how did we get here? And how did the modern legalization movement get started? The history of marijuana, as you report, Anne, has a lot of twists and turns. So let's talk about prohibition. Alcohol was illegal everywhere in the United States for about 20 years. And then we all changed our minds, right? Marijuana prohibition was never as clear-cut. In the late 1800s in America, cannabis was available, legal, and unregulated. This was in the midst of the patent medicine boom when manufacturers would put almost anything in a bottle and claim that it cured everything. Cannabis was in a lot of medicine cabinets, usually in syrup or pill form. Usually you also had alcohol, heroin, cocaine, and, you know, other cures for the common toothache. It was a wild time. 
But as the years went by, some people started to worry that cannabis was maybe too accessible because of cannabis poisoning. Like most medicines, cannabis has side effects. And those run the gamut from hilarity to you're kind of looking at yourself, out-of-body experience type of thing. Adam Rathji is a drug historian at the University of Dayton, and I spoke to him about the early legal history of marijuana in the U.S. Is it, is it kind of quaint to read stories like this in your research, these horror stories of like people not, not understanding time or being outside their bodies? Yeah. And the fun part of this is a lot of these become the sort of trope that we have now, right? That time slows down and everything gets elongated. You're looking at your hands, right? And like your fingers are like rulers or something, you know, extreme thirst or uh, extreme hunger, these kinds of ha-ha Cheech and Chong tropes that really do show up in these 19th century medical journals as case studies on administering cannabis for this specific medical problem. In the early 20th century, states started to pass consumer protection laws, restricting how cannabis products could be packaged and sold and how they had to be labeled. This was sort of the point of the progressive movement tackling problems caused by urbanization, immigration, political corruption, and, this one's key, industrialization. In 1906, the federal government started requiring manufacturers to truthfully print a medicine's ingredients on the label. It's no wonder that this started to put a dent in the popularity of patent medicines. Then, back to the states. In 1911, Massachusetts took the bold step of prohibiting cannabis outright. It was the first state to do so, and many others followed. A patchwork prohibition was beginning to take shape. States also moved to get rid of opium, morphine, and heroin. And America's medicine cabinets became a lot less dangerous. Cannabis got lumped in with harder drugs, and it fell out of fashion as a medicine, sort of around the same time that the medical field as a whole started becoming more professionalized. You know, not giving heroin to kids for toothaches and stuff. So, cannabis got booted from the medicine cabinets of middle-class white people, but it started to show up in jazz clubs. You know, where, uh, black people hang out. This is Cab Calloway with Reefer Man from the 1930s. And no, these musicians did not all have toothaches. They're smoking these sort of cannabis cigarettes, almost jazz cigarettes. Reefer, jive, weed. These high school boys and girls are having a hop at the local soda fountain. Innocently, they dance. Innocent of a new and deadly menace lurking behind closed doors. Marijuana, the burning weed with its roots in hell. This is a trailer for Reefer Madness, the 1936 propaganda film about how marijuana makes the upstanding, morally pure, white youth of America go mad. If you want a good smoke, try one of these. You will meet Bill. 
This film is a reaction to a lot of things happening all at once. Jazz had become the popular music of America, and some new immigrants from Mexico were bringing marijuana with them. And like the jazz musicians, they are also smoking this stuff. Our guest has been ranked as a pioneer in the worldwide movement to eliminate illegal dope traffic. He's Harry Anslinger. He devoted the major part of his career to the fight against what he calls the living death of every dope taker. Mr. Anslinger, good evening and welcome to... Until 1933, Harry Anslinger led the Bureau of Prohibition. But prohibition was on its way out. It's a medico-social police problem. He was heading over to a new job leading the brand new Federal Bureau of Narcotics, the FBN. It said that, you know, Anslinger didn't actually, you know, care that much about pot at all. This is Emily Dufton. She's a drug historian as well and the author of Grassroots, The Rise, Fall, and Rise of Marijuana in America. But in the wake of Prohibition being overturned in 1933, he needed to essentially reinvent himself to remain important. He didn't want to be obsolete now that alcohol was legal again. So he was like, well, what can I focus on that is still a threat? Ah, what about the devil's lettuce? (laughs) Anslinger went after cannabis consumption with a vengeance. He linked it very closely with black people and Mexicans. The Treasury Department intends to pursue a relentless warfare against the despicable, dope-peddling vulture who preys on the weakness of his fellow man. Even Anslinger's repeated use of the word marijuana instead of cannabis was deliberate. Marijuana is Spanish. It's foreign-sounding. Anslinger and the FBN also promoted the notion that marijuana made people violent. I've seen the great tragedy of narcotic addiction, cases where one marijuana cigarette resulted in murder. Here's Adam Rathji again. The idea that marijuana causes violence and madness is deeply rooted in Mexico. But it's also in all likelihood, linked to the types of people who were the most likely to use marijuana in Mexico in the 19th and early 20th century, which were prisoners and soldiers. Something your listeners may be familiar with is the song La Cucaracha. It's a, a Mexican Revolution song. There's a line in there about smoking marijuana, right? And There is? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and it won't march anymore. So that is sort of, okay, here's a really prominent example that people are familiar with of Mexican soldiers being associated with marijuana use. And of course, soldiers' barracks and and prisons are violent (laughs) places. And so that connection to, to violence and madness definitely comes from Mexico. But it's Harry Anslinger and the FBN that make it famous, so to speak, or infamous, uh, depending on your view, because it's the prominent narrative that they use to talk about marijuana in the 30s. In a 1934 radio speech, Anslinger claimed a young boy butchered his whole family under the influence of marijuana. He also claimed that the federal government was, quote, helpless in this situation, saying that the feds do not have the policing power that the states have. But... The feds do have the power to tax. 
do you have any sense of why in 1937 it was a tax that we chose to use? Oh, because the Federal Bureau of Narcotics was in the Department of the Treasury at the time. Aha! To build support for a crackdown, Anslinger wanted people to be really afraid of marijuana. And what better way to scare people than to give them plenty of boogeymen? I think there's two things. Like, one is the black user, of course, and the brown user, which he says that it will give them uncontrolled power and they're going to become incredibly destructive and back to, like, animalistic instincts. Whoa. So that's, like, one image, right, Like, which is really crazy. So race was a factor. Race is a factor because it's easy. It's just so easy to pin it on, like, well, right? And then the other, one might argue, contradictory image that he paints is that of, again, usually a black or brown user who's, like, incredibly suave and really dangerous because they're also hypersexual and are going to sleep with all the nice young white girls. So that's, like, it's the sort of the monster. It's like the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Right. That, like, he, that, that's really what Anslinger focuses on. Like, the, yeah. the person's either going to become a monster, but it's the question of which monster are they going to become. <laughs> right. It's almost like we're painting pictures of who the user is. Who, who we think it is, but we're not actually, like, asking anybody who uses marijuana. Oh, this is totally imaginary. Like, all yeah. of this stuff he's just, like, making up, right? Like, right. This is, these are daydreams, right? They're total daydreams. But the problem is that when daydreams become federal policy, like, that that's sometimes doesn't always end so well. The result was a new federal tax on weed, which made it possible for Anslinger and the feds to arrest people for possessing pot if they did not have a marijuana tax stamp. This is all Treasury for, like, a long time. But uh, that's the power they could wield. And if you register for the tax, if you pay the tax, you've proven that you're a pot grower. So, like... But who who was registering or paying for the tax? Like Very few people did. Yeah. They just stopped. They just kind of stopped growing pot. They're like, uh, this, is, this seems... This, this has a scent of surveillance to it, you know? And they kind of backed away. <laughs> but not everybody. Here in Denver, Moses Baca... A young Mexican man became the first person arrested under the first federal pot prohibition. This was on the night of October 3rd, 1937, two days after the law went into effect. Baca's trial became a sensation. The district attorney accused him of attempting to murder his wife under the influence of marijuana. Baca was convicted not for beating his wife, but for possessing marijuana without having paid a tax on it. He spent 18 months in federal prison. Anslinger himself even stopped in to watch Baca's sentencing. Anslinger was pleased. He told the papers that this, this is the strategy to go after marijuana growers and users. Federal prosecutors across the country, with this new tool in their toolbox, mounted an aggressive enforcement campaign against marijuana. Anslinger's campaign of fear was successful. Weed was not entirely eradicated, but it was pushed deep into the underground for at least two decades. And then the cultural winds began to shift. And what's that smell? Marijuana was everywhere in the culture of the 60s. It was even on the radio. This is just one example. A song by the birds called Eight Miles High. Eight miles high and when you touch down, Here's Emily Dufton again. 
that starts to get adopted in the mid-1960s and late 1960s with the rise of the counterculture as like, this is our substance that differentiates us from the older war hawk, fear-mongering generation of our parents whom we are trying to split from completely. They drink Manhattans, we smoke pot. This is bringing us back to the earth. This is bringing us back to community. This is our rebellion against the man in the gray flannel suit. So it becomes like this cultural totem, and it unites these really diverse factions of what constituted the American left at the time. So it's super popular. And it's popular among baby boomers, who, as we all know, would take over the world eventually. There's a famous quote, I believe it's Alfred Linda Smith, who's a famous academic sociologist. He says, no one really seemed to care about marijuana when, I'm going to butcher the paraphrase here, but the ghetto dweller and he has some other population that he lumps in there, were being hauled away. But now that doctors, lawyers, and their children are being arrested, marijuana is the sort of cause celebre of the champions of this group. It's really about that demographic. The face of it is the college-educated kid who you don't want to saddle with, like, unnecessary criminal baggage. That's really who it is. Right. You know, it's just the idea of, like, this person is actually an otherwise law-abiding citizen. So the face is less colored, I would say. The color becomes more clear as, yeah, as the timeline goes on. I was going right to that been... seems very white in a way. Do you know what I mean? Like, we're talking about, like, how could you look at this this student who otherwise has everything going for them. Why would you derail right. that future, right? Why would you derail that? So I, that's, like, this really sympathetic face. I feel yeah. like that's a white student we're talking about. Would you say that's fair? It's certainly how it was depicted in the media, for sure. This new image was a shift for many Americans. A 10-page spread in Time magazine in 1969 showed these pictures of middle-aged, professional-looking people enjoying weed at garden parties. And the piece openly questions America's laws against marijuana. Weed was threatening to bleed over from the counterculture and into the mainstream. John surrenders his dignity and lays his future on the chopping block. Not whether it's good or bad or right or wrong. But if he and government think, propaganda raced to keep up. Now he's too involved to think. He's having kicks. Marijuana was an early flashpoint in the culture wars, and politicians seized on it. Shortly after he was elected in 1968, President Nixon and his attorney general, John Mitchell, drafted these five schedules, classifying illicit and non-illicit drugs and how to regulate them. They placed marijuana all the way at the tippy top, Schedule 1, along with heroin and LSD, most dangerous of them all. Despite the fact that Canada and the UK at this time are saying, maybe we're making too big of a deal over marijuana. And a lot of the representatives, the congressional people, uh, Congress people, perhaps, <laughs> they're like a little uncomfortable about this, right? Because either it doesn't seem like that big of a deal, they sort of agree with the international audience, or, you know, I get the counterculture, but why is he coming down so hard on this? So Congress said that if you want to put weed at the very, very tippy top, right up there in Schedule 1 with all the other scary, dangerous drugs... We need to see some evidence that it's as dangerous as you say it is, President Nixon. So Nixon convened the Schaefer Commission, which inconveniently found that marijuana was not a national threat. Nixon was undeterred. However, I have such strong views that I, I will express them. Uh, even if the commission does recommend that it be legalized, I will not follow that recommendation. 
it really would have embarrassed Nixon. I mean, it did embarrass Nixon. People read it. And, you know, here's this man who's saying that those crazy reefer smokers are like destroying society, you know. And let's face it. I mean, in the 1960s and early 1970s, there were moments when society was in full out like social revolution. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. I have asked the Congress to provide the legislative authority and the funds to fuel this kind of an offensive. So in a nutshell, this is the origin story of the federal prohibition of marijuana that is still in effect today. In 1970, Nixon signed the Controlled Substances Act into law. It was the opening shot of what a lot of us now know to be the war on drugs. And in the coming decades, it led to the mass incarceration of people of color. All right, flash forward a few decades. Another dramatic cultural shift was underway. And it laid the groundwork for the legalization movement that we have today. It started with an activist in San Francisco known as Brownie Mary. Brownie Mary Rathbun is kind of like the feistiest little old lady you've ever met in your entire life. She's just great. She got the nickname Brownie Mary. Her real name really was Mary Jane, uh, which is um, wonderful. (laughs) Wonderful moment of historical kismet. But like, so she starts to bake brownie. She's a, she's a, a regular cannabis user. Mary was a waitress with bad knees, and she used cannabis to deal with the chronic pain. In the mid-1980s, she lived in San Francisco's Castro District, which is an epicenter of gay culture. And she becomes friends with Dennis Perron, who is an anti-war activist and a gay rights activist also in San Fran. And they kind of join up. She starts to bake brownies <laughs> for his living room-based marijuana supermarket, um, which he called the Big Top. And they get busted. Melting my chocolate and mixing my brownies and... The dog started barking, and all of a sudden I saw five cops' cars, or six, I think, and I literally freaked. So she has to do community service for her punishment, and she does it with the Shanti House, which is an organization that cares for, you know, people with terminal illnesses. And it's the mid-1980s where um, HIV-AIDS is really starting to, like, decimate the population of the Castro District. HIV-AIDS hit San Francisco and its gay population especially hard. By the time Brownie Mary started her community service, the disease had already killed more than 2,000 people in the U.S. This is Brownie Mary comforting a patient at San Francisco's General Hospital. To the hospital. I was so scared I was going to die. I know. And I was so Yeah, but look at it six years later and you're still here, sweetheart. Mary also volunteered there as a caregiver for AIDS patients, spending entire days getting them around, filling their prescriptions, and delivering hundreds of cookies, although these ones didn't have pot in them. So today we're able to manage the disease far more effectively, but it's really important to remember how helpless doctors were in treating it in the 80s and early 90s at the height of the epidemic. Well, so like the the treatment was kind of whatever the doctor could figure out. It was all so new. And mostly HIV, when it's like symptoming, is just symptoms of a whole lot of other illnesses. So they're just trying to treat like all the illnesses. But nothing's really working because, you know, what's actually under attack is the immune system. There was really nothing doctors could figure out to do. Right. These people were suffering horribly and, and just dying like by the handful. It was really tragic. 
Brownie Mary provided cannabis to comfort AIDS patients. The drug helped with a lot of the severe side effects of early AIDS medications. And then Brownie Mary got political. She joined forces with Dennis Perron and other AIDS activists to get medical marijuana on the California ballot for the 1996 election. They passed the Compassionate Use Act, Prop 215, in California after, you know, a really intense build and campaign, which is, you know, remarkable and very awesome. And they got their signatures and they get the ballot on the initiative and it passes. And by 1997, you know, a New York Times article says that like one in three Americans knows someone who has used medical marijuana. And like the face of medical marijuana is like incredibly compassionate. You know, it's it's like the AIDS victim who, you know, just just trying to get through another day or it's someone, you know, dealing with the chemotherapy of cancer or glaucoma or, right. you know, diseases that that are like bad. People are suffering. You know, you want you want to help them. You don't want to lock them up. Would you say that this is like a, this is a big deal for marijuana? This is this is the watershed. 1996. I mean, think about what Prop 215 is called, which is the Compassionate Use Act. By approving of this law, you were being compassionate, right? That changes everything. It totally changes everything. You know, 10 years prior, pot was like the national scourge, right? Like parent movement at the peak of its influence, Reagan administration launching, you know, just say no uh, public addresses from the White House. Like pot was going to destroy the country. 10 years later, it's compassionate to let people use it. That shift is remarkable. And then, well... You know what happens next. Colorado voters approved the historic ballot initiative to make marijuana legal in the state. Pennsylvania is among over 30 states that have legalized medical adult marijuana use almost two years. Says he wants to work with lawmakers to make recreational marijuana legal. New York State legislators are considering legalizing recreational marijuana. Recreational marijuana in Louisiana leads to find another. Adam Rathke, our Dayton University drug historian, says it's important to remember, though, that public opinion opinion about weed historically has moved in cycles. Is it just a matter of time, in your opinion, until the feds follow the state's lead now and <laughs> legalize? I would never be caught dead making this prediction. Uh, so I, I have no idea. But there are tons of cautionary tales here. Rampant commercialization is one of them. And whose money is involved and where the money comes from and who's generating the money and the other thing is, from a long historical view and arc, there's a long accepted paradigm among drug historians that these things are cyclical and that our nation's relationship with drugs is cyclical. They're roughly a generation long. They are 25, 30 years long. Basically, we go from relaxation to prohibition to relaxation to prohibition to relaxation to prohibition. And usually it's something happens during the relaxation phase to reignite the the fear or some angle that reignites people's desire to regulate these things again. Obviously, it's not over, right? We are still writing this history today. That's what makes it so interesting to me. All along the way, we've seen people fall into the gaps that these laws create. And those people, those are the folks that I want to talk to. And Maria Wad with On Something, a new podcast from CPR News, telling stories about people and weed and offering perspective on an industry that continues to evolve. 
And Anne is back in the studio with us. Hi, Anne. Hello. So even now, there are new laws in Colorado to reshape the marijuana industry. One allows cannabis companies to be publicly traded here. Mm -hmm. Another provides new business licenses for marijuana tasting rooms that are outside of people's homes. Uh, And a third allows home delivery of medical marijuana products. Uh, What do you think this says about where things are headed? I I mean, obviously, we're invested in this now, right? I mean, we're looking to make pot as available as uh, the Grubhub order I get yeah, right. more than I'm willing to admit. Um, or, you know, these businesses are going to be publicly traded like many other industries. Like we are normalizing this and we are just fitting it in sort of to the way that we do things normally. I, I suppose the question is if it has uh, effects, ripple effects into other drugs. You know, I, I think of the magic mushrooms measure in Denver, which passed. For sure. Yeah. I mean, and now you see there's a measure that passed in Oakland recently to do something really similar, but uh, decriminalizes other substances, too. There's a possible medical shrooms uh, proposition that might be on the ballot in Washington state. Um, so, of course, I mean, this is causing us all to sort of rethink the way that we treat these drugs. Well, you are here with a hint of what's to come in future segments of On Something. Let's listen in. I had sold weed to survive, and now these rich white guys that hadn't lived the same life that I did were able to come in and really capitalize off the marijuana. I started getting calls from people. They wanted to start churches where they could smoke marijuana. I went to some office in Beverly Hills. He took my blood pressure with a child's toy, you know, and said, what's your problem? I told him I was, you know, depressed and anxious, and he gave me a medical marijuana card, and uh, the party was on. I'm excited to hear what's to come. Thanks so much, Anne, for being with us. Thank you for having me. CPR's Anne-Marie Awad. You can subscribe to On Something wherever you get your podcasts. There's a new episode every two weeks. Finally, as I mentioned at the start of the show, the Colorado Matters team is about to head west. We're hitting the road for Grand Junction, and we'll broadcast Thursday and Friday from our studio on Main Street. Friday night, you can see radio in the making as we record an episode of the show at the Avalon Theater. My guest will be best-selling Colorado author Peter Heller, who has a new outdoor thriller called The River. That live event will also feature the winner of our Solo on the Slope music contest. He's Cousin Curtis of Placerville, Colorado. Tickets to the event are on sale at CPR.org. Now, as you would for any great road trip, we put together a playlist. And I just had to include some of the songs we received for that Solo on the Slope contest. Like the track Summer Sway by Patrick Storm. He wrote it back in 1981 during an epic winter storm as he wished for warmer weather. And as the clouds are gathering up another storm, stoke the stove and dream of days in the sun, shining down on everyone, life in a sweet summer sway. And the nights, they're so mild and warm, will dance to that sweet summer sway. Patrick Storm told us he wrote this tune when he was working in the gold mines and mills of Silverton. Another favorite, Colorado Sky by Jordan Copeland, which he was inspired to write on the beaches of Hawaii, homesick for the Western Slope. No 
We learned that Copeland's connection to Hawaii isn't unusual. In fact, one of the stories we'll bring you from the Western Slope is how Grand Junction has become something of a destination for young Hawaiians. Tune in as we broadcast live Thursday and Friday and follow our adventure on Twitter at CPR Warner and at Colorado Matters.